0: Uh, well, hi everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning online or a few of us face-to-face uh, as we come to the end of our final sermon on the book of Job. It's, it's felt like a long journey in many ways, but I think I'm, I'm, I, I, I trust a rich and rewarding journey. Let's pray as we come to God's word t- today. Father God, we thank you for the book of Job. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would Help us to understand it this morning and help us to understand especially what uh, you have to say to Job in in the last um, of these couple of chapters. Um, Speak to our hearts through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. But Dad, it's not fair. I did the washing up last night. I always end up doing more than him. You never make him do that. Now, of course, that's not something you would ever hear in our house. We have uh, perfectly behaved kids, of course, but I'm told that this is a scenario that often plays out in other people's houses Uh, and not just with kids because we're actually all a bit like that, aren't we? Uh, We all have a deep-seated belief in the importance of fairness and justice, that justice should be done. And when we read the book of Job, we identify with Job as he feels that he has been the victim of injustice. He still hasn't really got an answer to the questions. Why is he suffering unjustly if he's innocent? Why does God allow it? Last week we heard from Pastor Dom that, that uh, as uh, God took him on a journey through, to show him the wildness and beauty of creation... But Job still isn't convinced, as we heard in the beginning of the reading, he he still refuses to answer God. He puts his hand over his mouth and he gives him a politician's answer. He gives him a non-answer. But Job isn't satisfied with that non-answer, and he keeps on talking to Job until Job can understand. And so we come to part two today of God's uh, speech to Job. Will he answer his questions? Will Job be satisfied this time with God's response? Well, let's strap ourselves in for the ride. God starts off after Job's non-answer by challenging Job's accusation about God, which revolves around the question of justice. So in 40 verse 7, God says to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right. Right from the beginning, Job has insisted that he hasn't sinned. But the friends, remember, said, no, no, you you are suffering because you must have sinned. They believed in the righteous being blessed and the wicked suffering bad things. Remember, retribution theology. And that was Job's worldview as well. But he knew he was innocent. The only conclusion he could come up with was that God was treating him unjustly. It never entered into Job's head that actually things might not be as simple as he thought. The issues may not actually be as black and white as Job perceived it. And God answers Job not with words, but by opening Job's eyes to see the complexity and beauty of creation. Now, God may come across here as a bit harsh as he begins by, by plying Job with these questions uh, and challenging him. After all, a man has just lost everything and is struggling in pain. But that's because the stakes here are high. Job is in danger here of self-righteous pride, presuming to put himself in the right and condemning God in the process. Has he crossed the line? Has he sinned? Well, let's wait and see. But God wants to give him a wake-up call because it's a very dangerous path that Job is going down, mixing pride and arrogance and presuming to know better than God. Isn't that what led to Satan's downfall? Well, God goes on to issue Job with a challenge in in chapter 40, verse 9. "'Have you an arm like God,' he says, "'and can you thunder with a voice like his? "'Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, "'clothe yourself with glory and splendour, "'pour out the overflowings of your anger, "'and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look, um, "'Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low "'and tread down the wicked where they stand.' hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. You see, God's message to Job is put on majesty and splendor like a king and stamp on the proud and the wicked. God is saying, you are so concerned about justice, Job. Now see if you can make it happen in my world. And notice that it's done with power. Notice that God does it with his powerful arm and with his voice of thunder. Now, we might not always associate justice with power, do we? But uh, when you think about it, you can't have justice being done without the ability to implement it. We all know uh, now the the news from Victoria that it's been in stage four lockdown now for for many weeks. Uh, And that's involved some pretty severe restrictions, hasn't it? Um, not everyone agrees with those restrictions. Here are some excuses given by people who've been fined for breaching regulations. One man refusing to wear a mask said, uh, "I did it because my solicitor told me not to wear a mask." Another man caught at a friend's house when he shouldn't have told police that "I, I don't believe in restrictions." And then, a, then a third, someone else fined for breaking a curfew told police. Uh, I, I forgot why I was out. Now, most of us would think that it's actually quite appropriate to fine people like these for breaking the, uh, these laws, uh, and that can only be done. Justice can only be done when the state has the power to follow through on those laws, can it? That's when justice is done. That's when the innocent, the the, the wrongdoers are punished, and the innocent are protected. God is telling Job that he works justice in the world. The wicked are brought down because he has the power to do it. Well, then God goes on to continue to show Job pictures from his creation. Remember from last week, with uh, Dom Dom, uh, brought us on that tour of the wild animals, lions, ostriches, war horses. Now we come to the climax of that tour. The camera hones in on two animals in particular, two of God's most fearsome creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. Listen to God's description of them in 40 verse 15. Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Now we don't really know who Levi, who Behemoth is. Uh, it may well be a hippopotamus because he sits happily in the water with his mouth open uh, in the Jordan River during flood times. But whatever he is, he's the Sherman tank of the animal world. This guy sits there confident that nothing and no one is going to take him on. So in verse, uh, chapter 40, 24, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? And the answer is, of course, is that no, no one can. And you'd be stupid to even try it. This is an animal that no one can tame or control. But the message is in verse 19, that God made him and that God alone can bring his sword to control him. Well, then we come to an even more fearsome beast, Leviathan. And God says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope on his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Again, of course, the answer is no. No one's going to be stupid enough to try it. Lay your hands on him, verse 8. Remember the battle, you will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is even laid low at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. But then God takes things in a surprising direction. In the second half of verse 10, he says, Who then is he who can stand before me? So God is saying to Job, look, you haven't got a hope of winning the battle against Leviathan, but I made him. I keep him in his place. I'm even more powerful than Leviathan. And how can you possibly take on me and win? But then God hasn't finished yet with Leviathan. He's still got more to say. In fact, he talks more about Leviathan than any of the other animals. It seems that God is really proud of his handiwork. How strong and fearsome he has made him. I will not keep silence concerning concerning his limbs, he says, or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who will come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields. Shut, shut up closely as with a seal one is so near to another that no air can come between them they are joined one to another they clasp each other and cannot be separated now again we're not we're not sure exactly what sort of animal leviathan is a lot of commentators seem to think he might be a crocodile but this is no ordinary crocodile because out of his mouth go flaming torches Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. And then down to verse 25. At his majesty the gods are afraid. At his crashing they cringe. Verse 34. He is king over all the sons of pride. This creature breathes fire. And the gods cringe before him. Now in other places Leviathan is mentioned and he's a serpent or a sea monster who God will crush. He represents the forces of chaos and perhaps evil. It seems here in Job that God is describing a real creature but one that represents chaos and the wild powers that no one but God can tame. But this is a creature that God is proud of. He's showing him off to Job. It's the pinnacle of his creation. Now, at this point, you may be forgiven for scratching your head and, and wondering what on earth's going on, on here? God, what, what are you on about? Why does God take Job on this long safari where he boasts about uh, Behemoth and Leviathan? How on earth is this relevant to Job's questions about God's justice? Isn't God being insensitive here? Was was he really listening to what Job was saying? Well, God knew that there's no simple answer to Job's questions. Job's issues are too big and too complicated to be answered with the, the kind of words that Job expected from God there are some things that we need to experience to understand. Imagine a young woman rejected by her family, living rough on the street, no one to love her, desperately lonely and broken. She has an aching need to know love. She cries out to a stranger as he goes past, show me what love is. The stranger could then give her a definition of love and perhaps explain different types of love before walking away. But that's not what she needs. She needs a stranger to take her by the hand, to give her clothing and shelter, to take her home and to give her food and drink. She needs to experience love. And it becomes clear from Job's response as he responds to God a second time, that this time he is satisfied. Because he hasn't just heard some words from God about how divine justice is different from human justice. He's experienced God. He's encountered God. 42 verse 3. Therefore, this is Job's second response. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know Here and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I reject and turn away from dust and ashes. Before Job had heard about God. Now he sees him with his own eyes. And this time that's enough for Job. This time he's satisfied. And so, verse 6, he rejects and turns away from his lamenting, his dust and ashes, and chooses to let his complaint against God go and live in the light of what God has shown him. Now, just very quickly, the NIV here says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, for verse 6. I think, in my view, that's a poor translation, because Job didn't need to repent. His innocence is the point of the whole book, remember. And in the original language, there's no word for myself. The NIV has just added that because they think they need it. But actually, a more accurate translation is something like, "I reject," or "I despise and reject or reject," and turn away from dust and ashes." Job is satisfied with seeing God, But he must have also been satisfied with what God told him about the animals, about Behemoth and Leviathan. So what is the message in all that? We'll hold on to that thought because we'll come back to that to finish off. But first, God gives Job his verdict on him and his friends in 42.7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." The hammer comes down. God the judge condemns the three friends for not speaking right about God. We haven't got time to flesh that out in detail, but remember from the speeches that they claimed to know the mind of God. They believed that Job had sinned and that's why he was suffering. But they were wrong about Job and they were wrong about God, how he acted in the world and especially how he acted towards Job. But Job, on the other hand, gets a ringing endorsement from God. He has spoken what is right about God. That's despite accusing God of injustice, despite being in danger of crossing the line as we saw back in chapter 40, but he did not cross that line. At the end of the day, his honest cries were acceptable to God. And how did he he speak what was right about God? Well, we don't know for sure because we're not told, but perhaps it was how he insisted that God wasn't punishing him for his sin because he was innocent. And now we are left in no doubt that God is pleased with Job because four times, he call, in two verses, he calls him my servant Job. That title of God's servant is an honoured title. It's the same title given to Moses, the prophets, and ultimately to the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And God's servant is given the honour of acting like God's priest, praying for the friends so that they can be forgiven. Well, with that, we are almost at the end of the book. We've only the last few verses, what's called the epilogue, to go. Let's try to bring things together to make sense of the message of of God's speech and then the book as a whole. I want to suggest that God's purpose in these pictures of of Behemoth and Leviathan is that he rules in a way that is more than justice. And as we put it together in the epilogue, there's a final word that isn't just bare justice, but grace. Job's question for God and the whole reason he wanted to take God to court, remember, was all about justice. He wants to know why justice in the world isn't being done and specifically why justice in his own life isn't being done. Why he isn't being declared innocent. It might seem like God is evading the question in these speeches, but he does answer Job. Can you bring justice to my world, God asks Job by bringing down the wicked? And of course the answer is no you can't. No you can't Job. But God then goes on to tell Job that he alone has the power to make justice happen. And he shows that by showing Job how he keeps Behemoth and Leviathan in their place. Because remember that's Particularly, Leviathan represents the forces of chaos. Not by some, and God controls Leviathan, not by some cosmic battle where, where God slays this fire breathing dragon with a sword, but he actually looks after him and treats him as his plaything. He provides food for it, he nurtures it. And we saw how, how proud God is of, of this creature. God doesn't spell it out to Job, but the message of these chapters is that God's world is wild and complicated. Yes, justice is done, but not in the way that that Job expects it to, to be. Behemoth and Leviathan had no place in Job's neat theology of right and wrong. But this is a world of beauty, of wild beauty of colour, of crazy diversity where ostriches abandon their young and laugh at horses carrying people, where God provides food for young lions and sends rain on places in the wilderness that Job didn't even know existed. And wrapped up in this tour of nature is the message that God cares for and loves for all of creation. And I think Job is meant to join the dots and see that if he cares for the ostrich, then he cares for Job as well. But it still feels like a puzzling answer from God in some ways, doesn't it? If I were Job, I would still be left with questions. But as we saw from Job's second response to God, he was satisfied this time around with his encounter with God. It almost seems like there's something going on in God's appearance in the whirlwind that goes beyond the mere words that we've, we read in the, on the pages of, of the Bible today. And I think that is the case. Job says, I had heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. Job encountered God, not just heard from him, God treated Job with tremendous dignity by by going into such detail to explain what his creation is like. Far from crushing Job in the storm, God met with Job. Job didn't just hear from God that he rules his creation with justice, that is beyond his understanding, but he saw God. And that was an act of grace. He had a taste of God, that God is not only just, but that he is a good God. Well, after Job responds to God and after he prays for his friends, God restores Job's fortunes. He has seven more sons and three daughters. And interestingly, we're not told the names of any of the sons, but we do know the names of the three daughters. Jemima, which means turtle dove, a graceful bird. Keziah, which is a sweet-smelling and expensive type of cinnamon. And Keren hapuk which is a type of eyeliner used as a beauty product. And we're also told that Job gave his three daughters an inheritance along with their brothers. That was almost unheard of in Job's world. in a a patriarchal culture where the brother, the first brother, always got the inheritance. But Job responds in an extravagant, almost shocking act of generosity towards his daughters. Job responded to the grace and goodness he had seen in God in the way that he treated his daughters. And we shouldn't see God blessing Job again as God somehow endorsing retribution theology, that he somehow had to bless God now that he had repented. No, God is free to act as he chooses. He chose to be generous to to Job again. The book of Job is so complex and so, so full of questions that we can't possibly answer them all today. But I want to suggest that we... That, what we have seen in these chapters, is something that we need to hear as well. And that that is that God does deal justly in this world. But, like Job, we can't possibly understand what that's going to look like on the ground. We can't possibly know what that will look like in our own lives because God's universe is so far beyond our understanding. And secondly, we need to hear that God's dealings with us isn't just justice. It's not bare justice, but it's love and grace. And we can know that because God invites us to see him, to encounter him in his son Jesus. Because Jesus was characterized by extravagant generosity and grace. He was criticized and condemned for eating with and hanging out with prostitutes and undesirables, for failing to deal justly with a tax collector who who ripped people off. Instead, he ate with him and brought salvation to his house. Finally, he was unjustly condemned to die as a criminal for us so that we could come face to face with a living God and not be destroyed that's a gracious and generous God well with that friends we come to the end of the book of Job and uh, I've certainly enjoyed sharing that with you and I hope you have benefited from from our journey Uh, as usual we have a discussion question today just one question to finish off with so please take uh take the opportunity to discuss this with your small groups um after we finish so have a um may god bless you uh, as you do that